This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Doug O'Donnell. So he is the Senior Vice President of Bible Editorial at Crossway. And additionally, he is the author and editor of over a dozen books, including The Beginning and the End of Wisdom, The Pastor's Book, The Song of Solomon and Matthew in the Preaching the Word Commentary Series, and Psalms in the Knowing the Bible Series. So he's also contributed to Song of Solomon and Job to the ESV Expository Commentary. He received his PhD from the University of Aberdeen, and we get into his education and kind of how he got into biblical and theological writings and those types of things. But the reason why I had him on the show is because I had a a book that I wanted to talk to where basically, or talk about, I want to talk to the author about how did we get the Bible in modernity? How did the Bible get to us? Because there's a lot of confusion, a lot of cultural ideas about how the Bible was passed down and how it was translated and how the canon was decided on. And most of it is just flat out stupid and wrong. And so I wanted to kind of clear the air on some of that. So at the beginning part of the interview, probably the first half hour or so, we talk about uh, his educational background, how he got into the writings that he has. We get into some of the things that Crossway produces because they've just produced this brand new men's study Bible. It's absolutely fantastic. The ESV men's study Bible. So we spend some time talking about that. You know, how does... Crossway decide on what types of content they're going to do and how they discuss theological disagreements. But then we got into the Bible itself. We talked about how it was transmitted via multiple translations over multiple millennia and not just centuries, but millennia. You know, how can we trust the real Bible? How can we trust its inerrancy? We talk about inerrancy quite a bit. We talk about different translations. You know, he's had a lot to do with the ESV translation. So how do we get the English standard version of the Bible? But then we talk about men and how men don't read their Bible. So, you know, why make a men study Bible and men don't really read their Bible? The difference between kind of studying your Bible and just reading it, some cool things that Crossway has coming up down the road, some stuff for kiddos and just for other people that are looking to get a deeper level of understanding of what's going along uh, on in the Bible and the different scriptures and the commentaries and everything. Guys, I really, really enjoyed my time with Doug. We're looking to do some more things with Crossway that I hope to announce before too long, but without further ado, let's get into it. Doug O'Donnell, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Kyle, it's great to be with you. Now, as I told you off air, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you for multiple reasons today, not the least of which is because you're surrounded by books, and I think you wrote most of the ones behind you, uh, if we can go there, but let, let's get a nice soft place to land. Let's talk a little bit about your educational background and then kind of how that's led into the work you're doing now, because my understanding is you've authored a lot of books about the Bible, theological books, commentary books. You even mentioned off air that you did your dissertation in the book of Matthew, which is what we're going through in the forging table right now. So... How did you get interested in all of this? How did your education take you that direction? Go wherever you want to go with that. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I was converted to Christ uh, when I was 19 and felt a calling to ministry. Didn't know exactly what that meant, but knew I wanted to learn the Bible and eventually teach the Bible to others. Um, so I talked to the one Christian friend I knew. We played basketball together, um, and and he told me about two colleges in, in my area. One of them was Wheaton College. I lived about 20 minutes from Wheaton College, never heard of it. <laughs> um, and so I decided to go to Wheaton College and study uh, Bible theology for undergrad. Um, loved it. Uh, stayed, stayed another two years, did some grad school here at Wheaton as well. Um, and then I went to, did a, did, did a church plant in Chicago. And during that time, um, got married, <laughs> started going to seminary up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, did an MA in church history. Um, and then there was sort of a season of just pastoral ministry. 
uh, 17 years as a pastor, three years overseas as a professor in Australia. And while I was in Australia, they really wanted me to get a PhD. And so some of my expertise was old, is uh, Old Testament wisdom literature. Mm. And so I thought I would do it in that. But they said, we really need a guy to do Gospels uh, or New Testament in particular. But we had, they had a guy who did Paul. So um, I had written on Matthew. I was interested in the Gospels and obviously Jesus. <laughs> so yeah. I ended up doing a PhD at University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, and during that time, moved back to the States uh, for pastoral calling, and then eventually, about three years ago, moved into publishing full time with with Crossway. And with Crossway, I work on Crossway is kind of divided the book side and the Bible side. So I'm on the mm. Bible side, and my job principally is is kind of deciding what Bible projects we should do, uh, or, or working with a team who decides those sort of things. And then once it's decided, like we're going to do a men's study Bible. You know, who, who uh, should be the general editor, if there's a general editor, uh, who should contribute to it? And then I work with those people and with my editorial team and putting together um, the content uh, creation mm -hmm. for that. And then I kind of come in if there's any <laughs> theological issues that need to be solved, that this contributor said this, the general editor says this, and they're, they're sort of fighting over it. And then I, I get to call, I get to give the final shot, call on what, what we should do as a publisher. Okay, so you're the shot caller. I love that. You're like the the mafia don in the corner of the uh, the Italian right. restaurant. I love it. So uh, a few questions uh, came out of that there, Doug. So you said you were in Australia. Now, were you pastoring while you were in Australia, or were you just studying? Sorry, I was I was teaching. I was a professor at a right. seminary. Okay, uh, and I was I was preaching at my local church quite often and other churches. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about that, because obviously the majority of our audience is here in America, but we do have an audience in Australia as well. Right. It's a very post-Christian environment, just like our audience in the UK, just like our audience in Canada. Uh, but Australia is kind of a unique duck that it's it's very, very post-Christian. Again, a lot of people like to make, you know, make fun of the fact that it was, you know, uh, <laughs> United Kingdom's penal colony and they basically sent all the crazy people there. And then, you know, everything got mixed up with all the animals and the heat. And now everyone there is basically <laughs> insane. But I've, I've spent time there and I loved the people there. But it is it is a godless people group. And, and, a, and really, it's, it's a place where the gospel is needed desperately. But how did you uh, experience Australia when you were there, when the majority of the people there think that the Bible's nonsense and that God doesn't exist? Yeah, great question. Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah, the most secular culture I've lived in. Um, I and so moved with my wife, twenty-four years, and and four of our five kids. And I'll kind of answer the question through through the kids' eyes. It was interesting. So we lived in the city. There weren't options for Christian education, um, and so they went to the public the older two went to the public high school and of this huge public high school, there was one other Christian wow. uh, that, that they knew of. I'm sure there were more, but, um, and so that gives you a sense of, you know, how, how secular it is and to be an evangelical Christian or a Christian of any sort of stripe <laughs> um, is, is an unusual thing um, in Australia. We were in Brisbane, the city of Brisbane, which is the third biggest city. It's kind of like Chicago, where I'm from. If you're from Australia, you don't know exactly where Chicago is. Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. if you're from America, you don't know exactly where Brisbane is, but it's kind of Melbourne, Sydney, and then Brisbane is uh, up top, not all the way up top, but um, kind of in the middle. And it's the best weather 
in the world, by the way. And good, when my students good. would complain, I would uh, I would tell them, you know, you need to move to Chicago for uh, for a winter. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, but yeah, it was tough navigating, and, and just the church having uh, little worldly power. Um, it was a minority group, but yet in that, you know, Second Corinthians, in, in that weakness, there was there was God's strength. So it was wonderful to worship with Christians who. We were all in it together. You know, we all knew that we were the minority. And being in a city, too, there were a number of Christians from other places around the world, Indonesia in particular, um, heavy Muslim country, but right above Australia. So that's why there were a lot of Indonesians in the city. Um, but a wonderful sort of cultural mix of people and of worship. And, and I think it actually, like, strengthened, I'll speak for myself, my faith to have to uh, articulate what I believe, why I believe, um, why I'm a Christian. I remember the very first day we, we got to Australia, we went to what's called the Gold Coast, which is beautiful beaches. Um, they kind of call it the Las Vegas because <laughs> there's a lot of gambling and stuff. But yeah. I didn't do any gambling, but I did go to the beach, which is beautiful. And so first day we're there, we're from Chicago, so there's no ocean around us. It is the middle of the winter for them. And we jump in the water and it's, it's the warmest water we've ever experienced in our lives. Um, and the lifeguard comes up to me, is like no one else in the water. And he, he's like, you know, where are you guys from? <laughs> what are you doing? And, and I, so I sort of explained where we're from, Chicago, why this is warm to us. And then he says, you know, what do you do? Why are you here? And I say, I, I work for Queensland Theological College. Hmm. And his question to me is, what does theological mean? Yeah. I knew at that moment, like, okay, I'm in a different world. Not that there wouldn't be Americans that don't know what theology or theological means. Um, but it just, it was a wake up call that um, this person knew nothing of God, <laughs> Theos, you know, um, and certainly nothing of the study of God. I think that's interesting as well, because you don't really see that in America. And I live in Oklahoma, so it's kind of hard because, yeah. you know, you, you trip and fall and you will land on two churches somehow. That's how basically it is in, in Oklahoma. But when you go to these other places, my wife and I have traveled quite a bit. And, well, I'll put it this way. Um, there was a hockey team that started at our university while we were there. And so they had a bunch of players from Michigan and Chicago. And uh, one guy was from Canada. And they were kind of hanging around, and my wife was an RA at the time in the residence hall where all these players were living. And so they're in a bunch of different rooms just kind of hanging out, and he sees her Bible like on her desk, this Canadian guy, and he goes, oh my gosh, is that a Bible? And she's like, yeah. He's like, I've never seen one of those before. Would you mind if I touched it? And it's like, this was an 18-year-old Canadian kid, French Canadian kid, who just had no concept of the Bible, much less the gospel. So it provides, you know, ample training ground for you to, to make sure that you can answer uh, skeptics questions, but also to understand that not everybody has the exact same life that you do. Um, I also want to go back to something you said, Doug, about how you decide what projects Crossway will work on on the Bible side, because I think everyone gets the divide that, okay, here's the, the nonfiction books on, on the book side that can kind of help. They're just like, uh, they can be entertaining or educational, but then the Bible right. side, that's kind of like the serious side of the house, which is not to denigrate the people on, yeah. the, on the nonfiction yeah. side at all, but that that's, that's of the utmost importance and it, it requires the utmost amount of care. So can you take me through, I guess, the matrix of decision-making where you would say, hey, we're not going to do this project, but we're going to do this one instead? Yeah, typically, 
the where are the I I would say the first thing is like where is the idea coming from? And mm. so most of the I've only been here three years, but most of the ideas on the Bible side come from myself or our chief publishing officer uh, Don Jones, and our offices are right next to each other. So we we talk about different ideas. Hey, what do you think about if we did this? Um, and it could be something like we should republish the Gospel of John and do a new cover. You know, it could be that sort of simple, which is an easy decision uh, versus I would say like what sort of gaps do we have that we want to fill? This is more like with study Bibles, but it could be other things as well. So we realized we don't have we don't have hardly anything for teenagers. And so we just came out with a teen study Bible. Um, we don't have a lot of resources for children on the Bible side. We do on the book side. We have more on the book side. And so we worked on a curriculum, um, biggest story um, curriculum for children. Um, and that was a mutual effort with sort of everybody in house. But um, so what sort of gaps I'm working on a children's Bible right now, mm -hmm. and I'm writing, I'm writing most of the content um, uh, along with a few others here. So how we, we sort of decide, I would say like, what, what's the need if there is a need or what, what do we think would be really helpful for the church? And that can be, um, that could be children's curriculum. That could also be like, I'm working on a, uh, commentary in the Greek text of the New Testament with Tyndale House, Cambridge. And so we we get together, like, who do we think are the six best Greek scholars in the world that we can get to work with? That's a crossway. And then I would write up a proposal. Um, and then it goes through three stages at our Bible publishing meeting. Um, stage one is just sort of a memo. Um, one page. Here's the idea. Here's potential contributors or editors. Um, then stage two kind of expands. Stage three eventually would would have sample content. Mm. It would have solidified who's who's going to be working on it. Um, so that that's another thing too is for us. It's really important. Like what's what's the idea? Is it a good idea? Um, it, like doing a commentary on the Greek text, we think is a good idea. Then we got to figure out the finances of it. Can we pull it off? Mm. But also the contributors. So who's going to actually work on it? So if we feel like these are the right people working on a project, we get really excited about it. And so those kind of factors, those sort of three factors coming together, is the idea good? Is it in line with our vision mm. as a, a publisher? Um, so reformed, evangelical, Christian, Protestant. Um, and do we have the right people working on it? And do we have, and we always ask this thing, do we have the best people in the world? That's, you know, we're ambitious, but it's kind of like, uh, we just did a chronological Bible. We felt like we got the best scholar in the world to work on that. Um, mm. So if we can get that, that's important. And then finances, you know, does it actually work to, to print this thing or is it going to shoot us in the foot? Um, so th those, those are the stages. And then we, a group of executives votes on uh, the project and, if it gets a, a thumbs up, then then my team in Bible editorial sort of takes over, and then it goes. Once the content is created, it goes to production, and and on we go. So uh, I love that that you actually because some people you would ask them a question like that, and they'd be like, oh, I don't really know. I just kind of like put a bunch of stuff on the board and throw a dart at it. So I'm I'm glad there is an actual process. But you did mention earlier, Doug, that you're kind of the final say on if there is a theological debate. So take me through that because in a small way on the forging table, which I told you about, is you know we have four laymen around the table. It's a different mix every time. Like we have theological debates, but none of us have theology degrees. We're not professional Christians. We're not pastors. Like we didn't go to Bible. Bible college. And so we're doing our best with, you know, the ammo that we have in our current weaponry. So for you guys, I guess, 
uh, what makes you the final say? Why are you like, you know, <laughs> the, 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 you have the biggest gavel that, that you can throw down. Like how do those theological debates take place inside of Crossway? Yeah. It, you know, I mentioned my PhD. So my PhD is in biblical studies. I did in the gospel of Matthew, as I said earlier, but, um, so I have the, the educational chops to kind of, that's part of my role. Now I don't, I don't do that on my own typically. Like I will ask my editorial team, which are also, you know, educated people, um, their thoughts on certain things. I'll also, um, I'll give you one, one example. So you can say like, what, what, what kind of thing you're talking about? Um, so we're doing a commentary series. Uh, someone contributed, uh, to wrote Ecclesiastes mm -hmm. and he argued that, uh, Solomon was not the author. So one of the general editors, three, three general editors, one of the general editors said, no, it's gotta be Solomon as the author. Um, and so they kind of debated back and forth. Um, and so it was kind of at a stalemate. And so it came to me then, <laughs> what, what are we going to do? And so, um, I looked at the ESV study Bible. I consulted with, uh, an old Testament expert, two old Testament experts. Um, and, and then made a decision that we would, we would go with what the, we tend to go with what the contributor wants to do. Um, and so I'll go with the contributor, but I want him to write a whole nother paragraph on why Solomon could be the author. So it's a little more balanced. Um, and so those, those kind of decisions, um, would co come on my desk, but not, not often, but uh, again, I do it. I do consult experts in like the specific thing I'm being asked to do. And sometimes on the book side, we've got a book coming out and there's a paragraph they want me to read just to make sure this sort of doesn't get the author in trouble <laughs> or crossway in trouble. Um, and those aren't like political things or, or even societal things. Those are, those are just like Bible, Bible questions, you know, does Bible theology questions. Very good. So yeah, it's a great privilege to be able to do that. And, uh, uh, and await at some point, you know, at some sense uh, too. Well, it's good that, as you mentioned earlier, Doug, that you're looking for gaps to fill. And one of the gaps that y'all actually filled this year was a men's study Bible that I'm showing here on screen if you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble. And so I appreciate you guys shooting this over to me. Um, and I actually want to read the description of this on the site before I ask you about it because I, I love the description. The ESV Men's Study Bible was created for men in all seasons of life who are serious about God's Word to help them pursue a deeper, transformational understanding of Scripture. This ESV Bible Bible features additional content written especially for men, including daily devotionals and articles from more than 100 acclaimed scholars and pastors. Along with robust Bible study notes to increase their understanding of Scripture, men will find encouraging resources to help them develop a deeper love for the Lord. So I absolutely love that. But here's the thing that I know in talking to people that have written books for multiple different Christian publishing houses and, and different types of things is that men don't buy books. Men don't read books. Men, men don't take in this type of content, which is why when you walk into your typical Christian bookstore, it seems like, you know, a women's march, you know, threw up on an elementary school because like that's basically the crowd that they're going for. Right. And so it's a little ballsy to to put together a men's study Bible, knowing that 
there are a lot of men out there that just aren't serious about this. You might get them to read wild at heart, but you know, spending whatever you're going to spend on a men's study Bible. Again, you know, the importance of it. That's why y'all decided to do it. I know the importance of it. That's why I desperately beg the men in my audience, not to just read constantly, but to read the Bible. I take it so seriously that the reason we started the forging table was because last year, Doug, I read 54 books to prepare for interviews on my show. And I probably didn't read 54 chapters of the Bible. And over Christmas break, I was like, wait a minute. Like there is a tremendous inequity here. So I know there's a lot of ways that you can take that, but let's talk about the men's study Bible. Why do this knowing what we know about the men's market? Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, There was an, I was in a meeting months ago now where um, just it was like sales report, and the the women's study Bible is always going to do better than men's study Bible. <laughs> of course, sort of, like, of that, course. You know that's that's the thing. I actually I, I thought like, oh, you know, what if Kyle asks you about what other resources does Crossway have? So I went to our website, and there's all these categories, and the last one is women, but yeah. there's none none specifically for men. Of course not. Of course <laughs> not. It's we, not surprising have, at all. We have books for men, but we don't have categories. So it's it's interesting you know, your, your sort of preface to the question. Um, I think, yeah, we, we like you, you know, the bit I know about your show is it's like you're appealing to men. We believe that male leadership in the, the church and the home is absolutely crucial to Christian discipleship and to the evangelization of the world. And so uh, why wouldn't we do a men's study Bible if that that's sort of our commitment, that's our value. And so we we tried to design it in a way that would be appealing to men. I mean, you put the cover up there, but Peter Voth did the artwork, and I he's just he's great. He's wonderful. He's great. I mean, if you've never seen his work, just type in Peter Voth V O T H, and he has very manly artwork too. Yeah, yeah, I love <laughs> it. No, I've followed him on Instagram for years. If I can now. put it that way, and and every. He does a new design for the header of each uh, book of the Bible, which is just beautiful. I was just talking to someone saying I was going to go do this interview. And I said, I love we should do a poster of all of his artwork. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so beautiful and original and and uh, anyway, and manly, like I said. So um, I think having the right artist to appeal and the right colors, you know, of the, the three that we have out there. But this kind of green with black and white. Um and, and content that's specifically designed for men. I mean, you, if you just did, there's tons of study notes at the, at the bottom, and, and those have been taken from the ESV Study Bible, which is extensive notes, and they've just been mm-hmm. shortened, so it's a little bit easier. But if you're like, you know, what is a Levitical pr- priest? You can look down and be like, oh, that's, that's what it is, you know. Um, and what is this, you know, this certain Feast of Tabernacles? What is that? You can look at it and find out with the study notes. But... Things we've done, I mean, you mentioned like hardly reading the Bible and reading all these other books. So uh, we've got a, 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 you know, 365 day reading plan. If you want to try to attempt to read the Bible through in a year, um, we've got a ton of devotions, daily devotions, as well as just these reflections, almost 400 different reflections. Um, unlike key, key issues, some are going to be just like they're explaining the section of scripture, or that psalm. Right. But others are specific to to issues that men are going through, or in particular, you know, that issues that uh, temptations that women can struggle with them too, but men tend to struggle more with, and things like that. And then related to the home and work and things like this. So, um, and then there's um, 
a ton of charts and diagrams, and those have been designed also to be appealing to, right. to men. Um, I like looking at <laughs> charts and all that, and there are plenty of those to keep your attention. Um, and there's a, there's a bunch of articles, and maybe I can read some of the titles and find the articles here. Um, yeah, just that. Uh, so some will be just like, this would benefit any Christian. Uh, Brian Chappell does the message of the Bible. So if you're like, well, what's the Bible all about? There's a short article. But then there's things like man's identity, communion with God, the gospel and daily life, uh, man's inner life, life in the local church. I think that's an important one. Often mm. men um, think maybe they don't need the church. They don't need a fellowship of other believers and um, calling man's work, singleness, marriage, fathering, leadership, pornography, and doubt. So all of those articles, which are found at the end, um, written by experts in those fields um, on those important issues that, that men deal with, struggle with. Um, so I think we've, we've put together something that would really help men if they're like, I just need a Bible to start with, you know, like, where do I go? Um, I'm obviously biased, but the, <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is the place that I, that I would start. Well, Doug, what's what's funny about that is I've suggested y'all's ESV study Bible for years to people like, hey, if I can only buy one Bible, you know, what translation, which one? And that's the one I always say. And partially because the the, the first one that I have is just the hardback one. And yeah. I was like, hey, if you drop it, you're not going to feel like, you know, your grandma's going to get mad at you. Like it's it, it's something that you can take really good care of. But what I will say is what a lot of people tend to do, Doug, is they tend to patronize men when they're trying to make men's stuff. So I've said a lot on my show before, a lot of men's ministries out there, they're just women's ministries for men. So it's women's content that's been repackaged with different colors, with wood or with steel or with dirt. Right. And then it's like, this is our men's whatever. This is our men's event. This is our men's commentary. This is our men's Bible. But the thing about it is, is like men, whether they're emotionally available or or not, they can kind of sense when something's deeply yeah. inauthentic or when it's, you know, talking down to them as if they're two or three. And I don't feel like y'all done that. Like the, mm -hmm. this content's not kitschy. The, the, the contributors aren't kind of like softball Christian pastors. These kind of right. squishy Christian pastors. These are serious dudes like Alistair Begg, like the dudes in my audience, like Alistair Begg is like the gangster of gangsters to the, to the guys in my audience. And the fact that yeah. he's contributed to this as well is a big deal. But talk to me a little bit more about the, the brevity of the commentary, because as I started using it in my preparation for the forging table, I, you know, because I have the ESV study Bible out. I've got uh, MacArthur's commentary. I've got the Moody commentary. I've got the Reformation study Bible. And then I have this one. And it's like, it's the most brief of all the study Bible commentaries. Was that a specific reason like you wanted to make it smaller you wanted to be more to the point which is more indicative of a, of a male's attention span and focus what was kind of the reason for being more brief in the notes section yeah the reason was well part of the issue we always struggle with is sort of page count so you don't want too big of a, a bulky bible because then you won't carry it with you to church right uh, things like that or even bible study so i think that was that was one concern we we believe, I mean, the ESV study Bible is our best-selling Bible far and away, and it's because the content is so rich, and that's been for you know, 20 years. So we thought, why not you know, use that content, but just shorten it, both to, to make, make the Bible not so bulky, but also, you know, to be honest, is like, uh, we don't want people being intimidated. And if you see, 
it's kind of like if you you give someone a book and they're not used to reading and it has you know 20 footnotes at the bottom or it's got thick footnotes it's just an intimidating thing like sure. not everyone's a scholar so it's I, I think it's that same sort of visual is that we don't want too much going on on the page we want just the stuff that is essential or or for most people, most Christians, especially newer Christians, like I don't have any idea what that word means. And you can go there, you can go to a glossary. It has all these nice short definitions in the back. Um, so that was kind of the philosophy, you know, behind it um, is to make it a n not too bulky. And, you know, of all that is there, what, what do they really need um, that would be most beneficial to them as they read? I think that that is something that's very important as you get to this type of content. I think the same way in my preparation for podcasts to where it's like, okay, if you listen to me yammer on for an hour, you're not going to get that hour back. And if you listen to it at two times speed, a half hour of your life, you're never going to get back. So I really try to make sure that everything I say is pertinent and usable yeah. to somebody in, in, as they kind of move through. You did mention a comment, and I want to talk about this, and then I want to talk a little bit more about the Bible itself and how we got it, because that's kind of the, the, the meat of why I wanted to have you on today. But you mentioned men in the church and men having this idea that, you know, church is not for them. You had a few people come out in the 2000s, and they were Christian-type people, and, you know, Lecrae comes to mind where he released these albums about church clothes and how he's like, hey, he's going to be doing church wherever he wants to do church. He doesn't necessarily need a local community to do that. I think he's since repudiated that ideology, uh, if I remember correctly. But most churches might as well have neon signs outside saying, men, this is not for you. Because when you walk in the doors, all of the volunteer opportunities are more feminine, more, you know, people focus as opposed to things focus. And in general, men are more interested in things than they are in people. Um, the sermon content is uh, kind of effeminate or TED talky or just kind of like somewhat useless. It doesn't call a man up. The music that's being sung, the, the lyrical content can tend to be homoerotic or at least just not interesting it's sung in a key that most men aren't comfortable singing in or can't sing in and so part of the problem is men i'm going to always put the onus on the man because they're the individual that has to make the decision whether or not to be involved but man churches as i've seen have just not done a very good job of telling the men hey guys not only are you welcome here we desperately need you we can't disciple your children without discipling you. We can't catechize your entire family without getting you on board. We can't push back the darkness and culture without you. So talk to me a little bit more about that because to a degree, Doug, and you did it with the Men's Study Bible, y'all have a hand in equipping these churches to be able to tell these men, you're not just you're not just welcome, but you're necessary. Yeah, a great question and, and good observations. I. Um... I think, I mean, I'll just, uh, personal sort of reflection first. I, I think I had all the right sort of men and mentors in my life and just sort of, <laughs> it just, in God's providence, that's what I had. So it was, it was when it came to like sexual ethics, here's, here's what a godly man does. When it came to um, Bible study, you know, here, here's what a godly man should do. When it came to the local church, as you've been talking about, um, I remember my, my college pastor just talking about, I don't know if it was a sermon or an aside, just like how important it is to go to church, be a part of church in your college years uh, and find a particular local church. This should be like your priority as, as you get, whether it's the college or you move from one job to another. And, 
you know, find a local church, be involved in that local church. And he talked about things like tithing, giving money. And I was like, I was a young guy. I hardly had any money. I was paying for my own education. And I started tithing, you know, mm. and 18000 a year I was making, you know, so hardly anything that's going to really help the church. And yet I've never stopped since then. And yeah. I think that's like those kind of habits. And I think one of my mentors was uh, Kent Hughes, who you, you may have heard, Disciplines of a Godly Man, which Crossway publishes one of our best-selling books, um, is I, I learned from Kent, you know, what does it mean to be a godly man in these sort of areas, um, local church and giving your time, um, learning how to read the Bible, teach the Bible. Those are things not someone like who's just an expert Bible guy needs to do, do but every every Christian man needs to know how, how do I read the Bible? Um, how do I teach it if I've got a family? Or even, you know, you're talking about a group of guys getting together and doing a Bible study and, and you're, you're taping it so it's helping other people. And if you keep doing that, you'll just get better and better with your knowledge of Bible, of the Bible and how to explain it to other other people. And uh, so I think I think men um, I'm saddened that like not every man has the experience I had of like godly mentors. Uh, my, my father wasn't in the picture. My, my father's in the picture in my life, but not as a, a Christian mentor in my life. And so to me, the, the local church, you know, Jesus, who is my mother and my my brother and my sister, you know, it's like those who do God's will. It's like the church became my mother and my father and my brother and my sister. And I think every man needs that. They need someone to mentor them in the faith. And they could initially be like, yeah, listening to a good show or listening to Alistair Begg preach, like getting some sense of that thing. But deep down, there's something more they need. And that's community with other men and to reinforce what the Bible teaches on, you know, what's my identity in Christ? Uh, how do I treat women? How do I work hard under the Lord? Um, and and all these sort of issues that we're, we're dealing with. So, yeah, I do wish the church did a better job of raising up enough mentors that <laughs> any guy walked through through the doors, there would be plenty of older guys who could uh, take on those roles. I remember when I first became a Christian, I had went to this big church and someone came up to me afterwards and just said, hey, you, you want to start? reading the Bible together. He was like, he was 40, I was 20 something. And I thought the, I've had those experiences in my life that have just equipped me to walk as a Christian, walk as a Christian man, um, know how to relate better to my wife and how to discipline and teach my children. So it's, it's a huge need. And I, I mean, the men's Bible study is a you know, small part of that, but I actually think the local church is the bigger part of it. Um, and then other resources beyond that you know, podcasts, et cetera, that equip men for uh, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, and that's why, you know, in Daunted Life, we're here to equip men to push back darkness. And we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So that's part of the thing about the forging table is to have men around the country send me messages like, hey, I just started a forging table, like, because I was so inspired by what you guys are doing. And it's not because we're so smart. It's not because we're so talented. It's just that, hey, we were going to do this anyway. Why don't we just put some microphones in front of our faces and hit hit record on, on video to kind of give guys like, hey, if you were going to do it, here's a way that you could make this happen. And that's why I tell guys like when it's their first time coming on the forging table, like, hey, you're not performing here. Like you're not presenting. 
we're doing Bible study. Like, so, you know, get out of your own head. Yes, you have, you know, uh, you know, headphones on. Yes, you've got a mic in front of your face, but we're just doing Bible study. And I, I think that's why it's been accepted so well. But we, we've talked about all that. But the main reason why I want to have you on is just talking about the, the Holy Bible in and of itself, because there are a lot of misnomers about the Bible even within Christendom that most people don't really understand because they've, they've never taken the time to study it or whatever. But the first one would be transmission, the transmission of the vi- the Bible uh, via multiple languages, obviously from the Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek through to German, through to English. But then within English, you've got people that are holding the ESV Bible on one hand, and then they've got the message Bible on the other. And it's like, what in the world is this thing? And, and so it's like, but there's a difference there between a translation and an interpretation of scripture. But overall, you have these big cultural characters like Joe Rogan, who is so deeply ignorant on the Bible, but he'll say things like he'll just wave his hand over the Bible and be like, Oh yeah, the council of Nicaea just decided what was going to be, uh, you know, the biblical canon and they made a bunch of stuff up and you can't even trust the translations because it's been translated so many times over thousands of years. And how could we possibly know what it was originally supposed to be? So I guess the generic way to answer this, and I'll let you go wherever you want to go is how can we in 2023 trust that we have the real Bible, that it was transmitted to us properly? Yeah, great question. Big question. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah, uh, I'll try to do this quickly, uh, and we can you can play off things I say and sure. ask me other questions. Um, it, within the Bible itself, we have, uh, we have record of the transmission of like what God is saying. So, for example, you think of um, God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, and he tells him to record it on stone. And so that's sort of a, a first example of um, God has decided to reveal to humankind uh, something of himself, of his plan for the world. Um, and Moses writes it down. We know at the end of Moses's life, uh, he, you know, he, he traditionally is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And someone must have wrote the end of Deuteronomy because it records his death. <laughs> um, right. But Moses recorded those first five books. Um, and that shows you just sort of the value of the Jewish people and Christians as well. We're, we, we've often historically said we're people of the book. Um, and so those are the first five books, the Pentateuch, the five, the five books. And then from there, we have other record within scripture itself of recording. So Jeremiah is told to write down what he um, what God says to him. And then it's, it's, a, it's burned at some point and then he has to write it down again. Mm. And so those are just like glimpses of the process of what happened. And the same thing would have happened. You know, Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel that he's going to write an orderly account of, of the life of Jesus basically. And then he goes through, um, the, like all the gospel, all the evangelists, uh, the four gospel writers would have done writing a record of Jesus' life that focused specifically on the end of his life and his resurrection. Um, and then Acts is a, a book of history, in a sense, of the early church. And so there was, in the Bible itself is the point I'm making, first of all, there's there's record of how, how it worked. God spoke to someone. They recorded what happened in history or what God directly said to them. Um, and that's how we got scripture. Now, from there... Um, the Jewish people were meticulous in, 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 in taking the scriptures 
and in copying them by hand over and over. So if you read in the Bible, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, well, the, mm. the scribes were the ones who would have learned Hebrew and they would have, they would have written word by word um, and meticulous. And, and what I say meticulous is um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which some of your read or viewers may have, listeners may have heard of, uh, were discovered, you know, um, a couple of year, decades ago, um, a place called Qumran. Uh, and these are, we have like almost all of the scroll of Isaiah, for example. Um, and it, if you look at that scroll, it's like so very close to what we have in our Bibles today. And so we have archaeological evidence from manuscripts all over the place. That would be sort of the big one that sort of shows, oh, look at these are people way before, not way before, but a little bit before time of Jesus. And it shows us they were meticulously um, writing down scroll after scroll of the scriptures. Um, and then, then there's record of that. And so we have and the same thing happened with the New Testament. Hmm. And so we have we have thousands of, of uh, manuscripts, um, incomplete manuscripts of the Old and the New Testament. Uh, you could put them all together and you you easily get consensus on almost everything in the Bible. And if there's not consensus like this manuscript says this, you know, this very reliable manuscript says this, this one says this, then scholars do something called text criticism and they they try to decide which one is right. But that shouldn't throw us off because some of those things are like, should the word the be there or not? You know, right. The Christ uh, or uh, this one has son of God. This one doesn't doesn't matter too much because Jesus called the son of God in the next verse. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so there's very little that affects our understanding of who God is, who we are, the plan of salvation. Um, and so, yeah, what what scholars then do is and have done like so the English translation. So William Tyndale, Wycliffe before that, um, they would have looked at the original, the original in the sense of like uh, we don't have. We don't have the exact manuscript that Matthew wrote, but we have plenty of copies of it and more copies than we would have of, you know, a ton of other books in the ancient world like Homer, you know. Um, right. And so and every historian believes that Homer actually wrote, you know, this and that. So I think we have all these manuscripts Then scholars go through scholar like Whitfield or Tyndale. Um, they then translated it into English. Whit Whitfield would have been first and then Tyndale much later. And these are guys who knew Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and they translated it to English. And then that eventually became the King James. Um, and then, which obviously is still in use today. And then from the King James, there were different. Um, so the ESV is based on what I would say the English tradition of translation um, from, from Tyndale to King James to, um, the RSV, which was a, a revision of the King James to sort of modernize language a little bit or a lot. Um, and then the ESV um, worked with the RSV. Um, and then we made changes based on, you know, that might be archaic or we know more about what this word actually means. So we're going to change it uh, or the syntax, you know, how sentences put together is a little bit off. And so we're going to make it so it's more readable. Um, so the ESV then f is in the, the tradition of translation that would be called like more literal, literal or essentially literal. 
you know, literal would be like absolutely word for word, but you know, Hebrew is different than English. Greek is different than English. And so sometimes the words are going to be, uh, you know, Greek might start with a word here that we is the verb and we need to translate it after the subject. <laughs> and so, um, those kind of changes. So essentially literal means we're trying to get as many of the words as we can in the original and put it in English in a way that's understandable. Um, then there's another tradition that would be more um, thought by thought. And so you mentioned Eugene Peterson's The Message. That is like a paraphrase, like intentionally, I'm going to try to express in the most modern of English, uh, what is the thought uh, behind this sentence? And so, and both have value. I, as I, you know, I've been a, I am a preacher. I will often look when, especially I'm preaching through Job, which has a ton of difficult verses. <laughs> um, and I will often look at uh, the New Living Translation and, or the Living Translation and the, and Eugene Peterson, the, the message to say like, what do, what do they make of this? You know, what's, what do they think the sense of it is? Um, and Peterson's a, a great scholar. So it's not like you're, you know, he, he's, he's telling you what the Hebrew means, for example, in the Psalms. I mean, he gets a little eccentric at times and I sort of roll my eyes, but um, I, I say eccentric all, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I say all that to say there's, there's value uh, in, in, in both sort of uh, streams of tra translation uh, philosophy for me. And it's not because I work for Crossway, but the essential literal, I think is really important to have um, because it, I often say it's like the the more it's a paraphrase, the more he's doing the work for you, sure. you know, the, the, the translator. And so uh, instead of like me wrestling with like, what is Job exactly saying here? So this is yeah. like, I'm not making sense. And then also the role of a preacher. Like, I think it's very important that someone says, this is what the Bible actually says here. I know it's a bit confusing. Let me explain it to you. Um, and so I think both for the reader uh, for me to grow in what God actually says here, I might have to struggle with some words that I have no idea what, what they mean uh, or or idioms, you know, ways of talking that are foreign to the way I think as a America growing up at the time I grew up. Like, I don't know all these farming analogies and, you know, what this kind of clothing looks like. But if you try to translate it that into like, you know, he was wearing a suit. Well, no one's wearing a suit back then, you know. Yeah. And so to say, you know, his outer garment was made of wool or something. Um, so anyway, <laughs> that's maybe too much. But no, no, that, that that's all really good stuff, because, you know, I in a way I set you up poorly because it's like we could literally talk for an hour just about right. one of the things that you mentioned. So we're literally just scratching the surface. But you did mention the originals. And that's a large critique from non-Christians and atheists alike is, well, we don't even have the originals. So these are just copies of copies of copies. And people think of you know a Xerox machine and they're just copying the same picture over and over a million times. And then by the end, it's it's unrecognizable. So talk to me a little bit because, because again, we don't know our history. We don't know about the writings of Homer, the writings of Alexander the Great that – you know, the earliest copies we have were hundreds of years, you know, after he lived Julius Caesar, the same. Yeah. People that just blindly believe that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, but not that Jesus Christ walked in Galilee. And so, uh, talk about the fact that the, that have not having the originals is just really not that big of a deal. Yeah. You can think of it this way. Like, um, so Matthew wrote his gospel and then 
shortly after he did that, they were going to send it to different churches. So someone copied it, right? And then they sent it to this church in Antioch and this church in Ephesus. And then they copied it and they sent it to this church over in Turkey. You know, and so it it um, what we have is that sort of second transmission. Um, and we have copies all around the ancient world, ancient Middle Eastern world of uh, these copies. So let's say the the one that's over here in Greece, the ones over here in Turkey, the one that made it all the way to Rome and Spain, um, they're all they're all so similar, like 99% the same, which tells us that they're all copying from the same manuscript. So that's one thing is like that's sort of the evidence we have that there's an original that they all must have been copying from. Um, the other thing is just that like we have beyond that, we have evidence in other writings. So so there's the apostles and then there's the apostolic fathers and then there's like the church fathers. So the apostolic fathers would have been a group of, of leaders who um, lived right after the apostles and some of them would have known the apostles. And so we have their writings too. Mm-hmm. And so when they quote from Matthew, we can look and see was, was that the, is that phrase, if they're doing a quote, is it the same in, that we have in this manuscript way over here in Egypt? Um, and, and we find there's so much correspondence that there has to be some original that they all based, based these on. I, I think that that's a, an important thing. I'm trying to remember the details, but Vody Bauckham, uh, re- recently talked about, you know, how, oh, you know, the transcripts were all changed. And it's like, do you even understand what you're saying when someone said that they changed the transcripts? Because they would have had to have changed them in multiple languages, in in multiple parts of the world at multiple times. And like you changed them and got them back without anybody noticing. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, it's like you will just believe anything that somebody puts into a meme on the Internet. But one thing that I, I will say that is a struggle for me personally and also struggle for a lot of Christians. And some Christians have just stopped struggling with it. They just say, oh, I don't even care. It doesn't even matter anymore. And that's the concept of inerrancy. Because when you see things like a good example is in the synoptic gospels, you will have things, the same story described. And it's not that the story is described differently. It's that actual details, like numbers of things or people that were present are different in the different transcripts. And that is like, how can it be inerrant and all these details be different. Now, people have dealt with that objection before. Like if you're a detective and you have five witnesses to a crime and they all say the exact same thing, that's going to be a little fishy and suspicious. But when there are mistakes that are made, because people are like, oh, these scribes didn't make mistakes. It's like, well, of course they made mistakes. Like in, you know, sometimes if they made a mistake, they would throw the whole scroll away. Sometimes they didn't. But there are even, there's even kind of this new school thought that inerrancy wasn't even thought about in the early church that no one thought the Bible in and of itself was inerrant or at that time it wasn't the Bible. It was just, you know, the the different scriptures and the scrolls that were floating around uh, during that time. But people in modernity are just like, hey, inerrancy is like something that was made up during the, the Reformation. Like we, we don't even take that seriously. There are definitely problems in the Bible. You have prominent pastors like Andy Stanley or they're like, hey, don't tie your faith to the inerrancy of the gospel because that's a house of cards that will eventually fall down. Well, when people say that, you start to believe them like, man, maybe the Bible's not inerrant, that maybe there are errors there, 
but you know, the stuff about Christ is maybe not an error. So again, with all my question setups, I give you way too much information. Just let you kind of pick and choose with your big brain, what you want to talk about. So ready, set, go. Yeah. Feeling my brain small after that's a big question. That, yeah. I only uh, want to ask you big questions to make you as uncomfortable as possible. Doug. That's good. good. You asked how long I have. I think my time is up now. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got to go to lunch. Uh, yeah. Um, I think, well, yeah, inerrancy is a, a term that is relatively new in church history, but definitely I would say a high view of scripture in the Reformation, the, the church fathers, you know, everyone had a high view of scripture until <laughs> more recently. Um, I do think, yeah, with, with the, the dawn of the scientific age, all these sort of things, we're able to look at these manuscripts. And so you're able to see things that other generations wouldn't have been able to see. That said, you know, there, there are times, <laughs> you know, John Calvin, the great reformer and one of the best commentators on the Bible in the history of the church. Uh, I remember it's somewhere in, I think it's Matthew 2, where uh, Matthew quotes Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah says this or something, and, and, it's, and Calvin goes, it's actually not Jeremiah. You know, like, so it's like, like, you know, in other words, Matthew made a mistake. Um, <laughs> right. But there, there are two things. So one, it's like you can have as high, high a view as Calvin and sometimes say, you know, I'm not sure if this is right. Um, so I think that's, that's okay for Christians to hear. Like um, that said, there, there could be two things. One, there could be a scribal error, as you mentioned. Um, so someone's translating and they put the wrong name. Um, the other thing, and so we don't have the original manuscript, so it's sort of trusting that the original manuscript doesn't have that. The other thing is there's some there's nuance to what sometimes the writers are doing. And so, for example, Matthew will sometimes quote uh, two prophets, but he'll say something like Jeremiah, even though most of the quote is from Hosea, um, because Jeremiah is the bigger prophet. <laughs> we call him major prophet versus minor prophets. He wrote more. Uh, he's more important in, in that sense, uh, like Isaiah, Ezekiel. Those are, those are the big guys. So, so you, it's kind of like you would say in our culture, you know, like this famous person said this. Well, so did these other people too, but I'm going to say him, even though they said it first. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so there are things like that, like where the more you dive into the specific issues, there are reasonable, in my mind, reasonable explanations for why the biblical author might have said Jeremiah instead of Hosea, um, or um, or why the account has uh, you know two men, two men in the tomb that are demon possessed versus one man, um, and so well is it two or one? You know which gospel writer has it correct? Um, and so the, I mean this is the synoptic problem. It's called Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it, it's it's also I like to say it's. You know, it's a great problem to have because we have four witnesses to to a number of different events, and most importantly, the death and resurrection of Christ. So, if this was a trial, this would be great. We've got four eyewitnesses who have written stuff down, um, and so it, it is though these sort of tricky things where you're like, well, is it two or one? But it also, of course, could be that there were two, and Mark decided he wanted to emphasize one in his specific story, and and. Luke wanted to do two who were actually there, but it doesn't mean that Mark didn't know two were there. It just means that he decided to focus on one, one aspect of the story. Um, and so you, you have the same thing with like, you know, Judas hanged himself and then, you know, 
he fell to the ground or something. Well, you know, which one is, which, which is right. Like, well, he could hang himself and then actually fall from, from the noose, you know, like his weight could take him down the cliff. So, so there are, you know, and, and people have done like harmonies of the gospel and how to, you know, how to reconcile. So there's plenty of literature out there. If someone wants sort of answers to these, these uh, tricky sort of historical things. I mean, in the end, it's, um, you know, my view of scripture comes, everything to me kind of goes through Jesus. And so what was Jesus? If I, if I've come to believe in Jesus as he is portrayed in the gospels and he becomes my Lord and my savior, well then his view of things matters to me quite a bit. And those who are closest to him, their view matters to me quite a bit. And so he had a high view of scripture. Um, believed, you know, David said this under the inspiration of the spirit. This is how he and the apostles talk about different things. And so that's my view. I believe this, that the Bible is spirit inspired, the very word of God, you know, not a jot and tittle, you know, that's a little markings in Hebrew. Like it's all inspired by God. And in a sense, then it's like, it's without error in the original manuscripts. That is when God communicated it to the author and he wrote that manuscript down. Well, Doug, let's talk about every jot and tittle because I think it's important. I get a little concerned when people read the Bible from cover to cover, literally, and they read everything as literal. Because mm-hmm. in the Bible, we have collections of wisdom literature. We have, you know, prophets, we have apocalyptic literature, we have, you know, Psalms and Proverbs, we have history, uh, we have poetry, we have all these different categories. And I guess that's when it leads to these debates. Like I I got another email today. I get asked about young earth all the time, young earth versus old earth. And as a category, it is one of the least interesting things to me on the planet. Like I am interested about like mollusks more than I'm interested about how old the earth is because I don't think it's actually knowable, but you have people that will read Genesis and they will read it as a, as a history book and saying, this is how it literally happened. It's, you know, seven literal days as I experienced 24 hour days in modernity. And they have basically, they've shut themselves off to anything else because to me, it's just, it's odd. Why would God give us all the ways to calculate all of these things and to age things only to pull a fast one on us and say, just kidding, it's only 6,000 years old. But just talk to me a little bit about how people read the Bible, because I I know a lot of people, me included, struggle that if I don't have time to study the Bible, then I'm just not going to read it because you can't just read the Bible. You got to study it. You've got to dig into every single passage and figure out what it said in the Greek and how it relates to this prophet and how it relates to this part of the gospel. And it really just kind of freezes people because we're stuck somewhere between literalism and not having enough time to just read it, much less study it. Yeah. Great question. I, um, my latest book actually is on the genres of the Bible. So with Lee Riken, who's a literary uh, professor uh, of English literature. Um, and so all those genres you mentioned, it's like a chapter on each of them. Okay. It's for a preacher. It's called The Beauty and Power of Biblical Exposition okay. um, and by Crossway. So I plugged my book there. There you um, go. It'll be in the show notes. We'll put it in there. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so it, it it's, uh, no, it's, the book is written for preachers, but a lot of people have told me who, who are lay people who've read it, like, this is such a helpful thing because I've never known how to read Proverbs. Mm-hmm. I've never known, I've always read them as promises, but they're all promises and not 
general truths or guidelines or things like that. Um, and the same with poetry. Like, I don't know what to do with poetry. I just skip over it, you know, type, yeah, right. uh, apocalyptic literature, you know, th this sort of stuff. So the book helps you with all of those things. I think, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it bothers me too. When people are like, I leave, read the Bible literally, you know, like, um, it's like, well, you haven't read the Psalms. Then it's like, you know, I've put all my tears in a bottle, you know, okay. You, you know, <laughs> Can't yeah, even exactly. Can't you know, Jesus that. is not <laughs> Jesus is not actually a vine. He's not actually a door. Yeah. He's not actually any of those things. Right. Yeah. So common sense, even if you know nothing about how different types of literature in the Bible work, um, you know, should tell you that oh, this must be a metaphor for something. Um, so the Bible is not literal everywhere. Um, that's not to say like Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead or. When it says on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue in Capernaum. That's literal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when he yeah. says, I, I am the vine, um, you know, or take and eat of me on the bread of life, you know, those are metaphors um, for for some reality he's trying to, to teach. He taught in parables, which are which are symbolic stories. Um, and so I think it's really important that we read, whether it's the Genesis account, and I, I, I don't want to get into that too much here. I don't want hate mail. I want you to get the hate mail, not me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but um, I think, but at the very least, you need to understand uh, like how poetry works, how um, there's poetic things going on in the creation accounts, just the days and how it's ordered. It's really beautiful. Um, and the more you read Hebrew poetry, the more you understand like that's done all, all over the place in the Bible and the Beatitudes are ordered in a certain way. Jesus talks this way, Mary and her Magnificat, you know, she, she speaks in Hebrew poetry. That's so similar to the Psalmist and the song of Hannah and these sort of things. Um, so I think it's, it's really important if you're going to try to understand the Bible, that you understand there are different, different genres, different types of literature. Um, and you have to ask yourself, what am, what am I reading at this point? Um, and so, I mean, we, we divide, like, these are the historical books. These are the books of poetry. Uh, we do have some categories that I think help people, but sometimes like the gospels, the four gospels, they have almost every type of genre in there. The Olivet Discourse is apocalyptic literature. Um, Jesus using imagery and things like this. And so people misinterpret that too, when they think, oh, when this sign happens, then, you know, this earthquake, you know, over here, uh, in Japan represents the end of the world. You know, people write stuff on that and they're always wrong. <laughs> um, and it's because they're, they're, mis, they're misunderstanding like what, what he's actually saying in the Olivet Discourse to his first generation and then the generation beyond that. So it, it, it can be very complicated, but I think to your point, I think Christians, if, if this is the first time you're ever reading the Bible, you should come to Genesis and say, I'm open to how God is deciding to speak here. And what I often say to students is, you know, God, God is so diverse in the way he decided to communicate in written form um, that it's, you know, he decides to start with a, a narrative, which is poetic as well. Um, and then Adam sings a song, you know, <laughs> and, right. and, you know, and on you go throughout the Bible. And there are whole books of just poetry. Um, Ezekiel's got all these, you know, crazy things going on that if you don't understand this is apocalyptic, um, you're and you're thinking this is literal, you'll just completely misunderstand the message that God is trying to give to us. So I love God's creative genius that it wasn't if you've ever read 
the Quran or Book of Mormon, especially the Quran, it, it's it's so different than the Bible because it's just sort of truth things, which are not truths. Um, and the Bible is a story. It's a big story. There's little stories within the story. And then there's these poems and there's crazy scenes and and all of that. And and the more you grow in your reading of the Bible, the more I think you should appreciate how God designed the Bible as a story, but also a story with so many different ways of communicating truths to his people and to the world. Well, and I think there are a lot of things that I could say there, but I, I think it's the Kalam cosmolo cosmological argument. I'm trying to do my best William Lane Craig impression, but it's like, you know, talking about time, space, and matter. So if yeah. you read Genesis 1-1, Literally, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. Like he, mm -hmm. he created all of that there in the beginning. And so you could take it philosophically, you could take it scientifically. Uh, but I, I think the, the thing that's important for people to realize is a book like what you described that you wrote is going to be helpful for you because it's the same thing that whenever you take – uh, scripture out and put it on a coffee mug or a water bottle and you take it completely out of its context, it loses right. its meaning because text without context is meaningless. And so I think that's, that's very important for us to understand the categories as well. One thing, and I don't know what Crossway has done because I don't know the entire Crossway canon or not, but one of the things that has helped me to believe not only in the, the truth of the gospel, but it's really the truth of the eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and the ministry that happened thereafter are the extra biblical writings. So these are the writings of people. So when you have dummies say, did Jesus even really exist? It's like, well, yeah, it's like one of the most attestable things in all of antiquity that Jesus existed because it's not just written about in the Bible. So if you accept, which I don't, but if, if you accept that the Gospels were written by people that were trying to get rich and famous and get chicks, and you know that was how they were going to control people was to write these Gospels with fabricated stories, great. Now you need to talk about Josephus. You need to talk about Tacitus. You need to talk about Celsus. You need to talk about Pliny the Younger. You, uh, you need to talk about all these people that if some of them – were neutral to the the way and some of them were actually angry and and wanted to be you know uh, yeah. adversaries to the way it's those extra biblical writings so for you guys at crossway how do you do the extra biblical writings do, do have y'all put together or do are there any plans to put together only extra biblical writings that point to the truths in the gospel like hey when this was talked about in this area of Galilee, here's how it attaches to something that Josephus wrote in, in the early parts as a historian. So is there anything like that that y'all have done or that's in the works? Yeah. So some of, we've got two, two books in particular by a guy named Peter Williams, who's a, um, he, he leads something called Tyndall house in Cambridge in the UK. Um, brilliant, brilliant scholar. Um, so he, he's, a new book that's coming out, I think it's in a couple months, um, something, the title is something like Surprising Genius of Jesus. And mm -hmm. not only does he show like how Jesus's teachings are genius, like this is really brilliant, but he does a lot of background work too that's, that's helpful to kind of um, supporting the historical Jesus. Uh, I think he's done another book, um, something reliable are the gospels reliable or something something like that i should know the call of crossway books right but yeah right <laughs> it's, it's something like it's something like that so peter williams um tyndale house we we do a lot of work with tyndale house they they do a lot of the stuff you're talking about so so peter williams and 
he's got a whole team of, of scholars working on something called the, the name project. It's really interesting. Um, so for example, like, uh, the name, the name Simon. Um, so it's all over, you know, the Bible, um, all over the new Testament. So like they look at extra biblical literature to see, well, how popular is the name Simon in this area of the world? Um, and they've discovered like, you know, initial sort of findings and they're doing this with the old Testament as well. Um, it can prove the reliability of something to say if like Simon and Jesus, these are really popular names at that time. Like they're, they're also found in other literature of that time period. Um, or, you know, Josephus, like, so someone named Joe, Joseph, um, popular name, Judah, Judas, popular name. Um, and so Mary would be a popular. So all of these sort of names that we find in the new Testament and the amount of times we find them, um, and so this is why it's like, you know, you got two guys named the same. So they got to come up with a name for someone else because <laughs> they're trying to or, or Jesus of Nazareth because there's so many Jesuses. Um, and so uh, that sort of extra biblical stuff is going on. So we're working with them on that massive sort of scholarly project that probably eventually would be published, uh, Lord willing, by us or, or by some academic publisher. Um, so there, there are things going on. And, and you had I think you mentioned before we got on like the book on the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We're doing some scholarly things like that for people who are interested. Uh, if you just go to like crossway.org uh, and click on like the academics box or we've got apologetics. Uh, yeah, the first two are academic and apologetics. There would be some resources there that could help you out. Yeah, that website will be in the show notes as well. One thing right. I, I would, did want to talk about is because at the forging table, everyone that's been on there basically has used the English Standard Version, the ESV Bible. Uh, I have several different translations. Uh, my church, the the pastors use the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, mm -hmm. um, and those those are, are pretty close. But just describe to me the ESV translation of the Bible. Describe to our audience, like, what is it? Because people know the continuum, like, okay, is this a word-for-word -word translation, or is it a thought-by-thought, -thought, or is it a something other type of thing? And they just, most people look at the ESV, they'll flip through it, and they'll go, oh, there's no these or thous, so this might be more readable for me. But yeah. let's just talk about what is the ESV translation? How did we get it? Why is it a good translation for us to have? Yeah, so... Um, I'd mentioned earlier, there's, uh, translation traditions. And so some of the modern translations that are done have just been a group of scholars. Um, they're not unconscious, but they are, there's of like the tradition that comes before them in translating to English. But the ESV is intentional in saying we want to be in the tradition of Tyndale, King James. I mean, if you've ever listened to King James read aloud or, um, or just read it, it has a, a cadence to it and it has a beauty to it. And I would say that to me sets aside, sets apart the ESV um, from a lot of translations is we intentionally tried to keep as much of the cadence of English as we could, good English uh, as we could. And so that we had a literary stylist as part of the translation committee because we really valued that not only correspondence with, we're part of a, a tradition of translation. We're not just doing our own thing and we've got a group of scholars looking afresh at the original and that's it. Um, what we did was we're part of a tradition. We care about literary excellence and readability and, and all of those sort of things. And then 
we had a group of, we have a group of scholars translation oversight committee um, that looked at the English translation that we're working with the RSV and then also the original languages and made changes where we thought they needed to be made um, either there's an academic reason this word should be this or this phrase is better rendered like this um, and so but the goal then was yeah to, to have an essentially literal a, a word for word where possible um, Sometimes you need to translate something that this word into a, a phrase to make sense in English, for example. Um, and so, and something we also did that's not in every um, literal translation is, is keeping theological terminology that we think is significant. Um, so even words that might be hard to pronounce or know what they mean, propitiation, you know, used in First John. Um, it's the turning away of God's wrath. And so it's not just an atoning sacrifice as some translations would have, but there's actually an element of turning away God's wrath. And the, the best word in English for that is propitiation. And so keeping those kind of words that, that other translations would say, oh, that's archaic. Nobody knows what that means. That's too mm -hmm. difficult a word for someone to read. Um, you know, redemption, sanctification, reconciliation, regeneration, justification. These are important theological terms that we wanted to be in there. And also trying to be, being a word for word translation is if a word is used the, here in, in this place in the New Testament, this Greek word is used. We want it also to be used, um, if it's that same word, translated the same way, if that's what the context dictates. And so trying to, to do those sort of things. Uh, I mean, you mentioned your church, the uh, NASB, um, yeah, it's like that before the ESV, I use that and I still will use it devotionally from time to time. Um, they would be very close sort of in a philosophy of literal translation, word for word, that sort of thing. What the ESV does is why I think it's better is is these things, literary style, readability um, and then being a part of of a tradition, um, the English tradition of translation. And I will say that the ESV is so tremendously readable, but it doesn't feel doesn't feel dumbed down. I guess you could say. And so, and, yeah. and again, if you, if you like the NASB, great. Uh, you know, I don't really know a whole lot about NIV. That was the first Bible that I owned. So the first yeah, Bible that I dug into was a was a teen uh, NIV Bible, and so uh, that that completely makes a lot of sense now. I have a whole lot more questions I want to ask you, but you got things you got to go do today. So I want to make this the last thing that we talk about today, because you mentioned this a long time ago now, probably about an hour ago, that you're working on a kid's Bible. And so right now, Doug, I've got a three-year-old and I've got a one-year-old. And so I am so, I guess you could say nervous, but it's like I have a reverence for the fact that it's my job and duty to catechize my children. Because yes, my, my son's learning all the dinosaurs right now. And he's so excited so much so that when I ask him catechize type questions, like, Hey James, you know, who made the earth? And he'll be like T-Rexes. And I was like, no, no, no. Like God, who made, who made the T-Rexes? Uh, I think God did dad. I'm a velociraptor, right? That those are how our conversations go. But I, I take the catechism seriously. Crossway sells some great catechisms and things like that. But talk to me about how you put together a Bible that is for kids because I didn't grow up in church, Doug. So yeah. a lot of the Old Testament stories that a lot of people have, that's just kind of old hat. I didn't get that. I didn't go to VPS, VBS. I didn't go to Awana. I started going to church basically when I was in high school. And so I want my kids to have that, but I don't want them to think the point of Noah's Ark is that, hey, they got two of every animal on there or two of every kind on there. Isn't that cool? It's like, 
he had to build the ark because God was going to flood the earth and kill everybody. Like, you know, like, but how do you do that with a kid that's three, four, five years old? So talk to me about that project. I want to know more. Who's it going to be targeted at? You know, what age group, everything. Yeah. I need to show you a resource and we can send you one. Give me a second here. Perfect. I love goodies. I've never had an empty chair on my show before, so that's going to be the screenshot. Let's see this thing. This is a big. Uh, so this is Kevin DeYoung and Don Clark is the uh, um, the artist. So Kevin did wow. a book called The Biggest Story, and it's a bunch of Bible stories. And so we've done a a curriculum, 104 stories. Oh, sweet! Uh, and I helped helped write some of the lessons. Um, or I, I wrote the lessons and then others helped with crafts and everything Guys, if else. you're not watching this on YouTube, you are missing out. So go back and watch it later. All right. So this is a, so beautiful art and it just goes through uh, Pentateuch, first five books, history, poetry, gospels, acts, um, and then a coloring and activity book. Um, so the, and this is one of the, so since the ESV study Bible, this is the biggest thing Crossway's done. It's a big, big deal. So it's, um, it's got here's the Tower of Babel. So, you know, lesson on oh, wow. sort of key key things in the in key parts of the Bible and walks you through the big story of the whole Bible. So it starts with a, a lesson. So read this from Genesis, then a big picture. This is sort of and these are written for teachers, but also for like homeschooling or just even, you know, you with two two little ones that aren't in school, school age yet. Um then teaching the story kind of reiterates what the story is, makes a connection of the gospel, which makes it unique in a lot of curriculum. Yeah, how, yeah. Then what's called biblical theology, you know, how does this connect the Tower of Babel? How does that connect to Jesus? Um, and then it's got some discussion questions and then activities. Activities are broken down in the K through second grade and then third through fifth grade. Um so toothpick tower is one of those. <laughs> okay, there you go. So on, um, and yeah, and then and then what is amazing is you've got the the activities, but for each lesson there's also a professionally made video um, where someone's reading it, the story. So you can you can use all. And we've got posters, we've got memory mm. cards, Bible memory cards. So we'll send you we'll send you all that stuff, and, That's and great. you can promote it for us. Um, but yeah, so that that's something that I've been I've worked on that's just out now this summer that we're really excited about um, helping the church, but also helping the home. I think. Oh yeah. You know, my kids are all. My youngest is sixteen now, but I, I wish I had something like that to to help me as a father, like know what to say and what to what to do. Um, and then, so the children's Bible then is a. It's basically we've done a suite based on this biggest story concept, and so it will have it will feature the same 104 lessons throughout and some of the content from that will go into the, the Bible. So there's some continuity, continuity there. So I think what's unique then about this, this children's Bible is teaching the children uh, how the, how the stories fit together with the big story, Hmm. um, which I think is really significant. I remember Christian 19, you know, like, I don't know, 21, 22, where, first time I was introduced to biblical theology, how, how the old Testament relates to the new. And it was just sort of mind blowing. And I, I thinking of like a kid getting that, you know, you know a six year old, a seven year old going, wow, I've never thought about how the sacrifice of Isaac relates to the sacrifice of Jesus. And so yeah. that's not that other, you know, Bibles wouldn't do that, but I do think um, it's, it'll be unique, a unique emphasis that, 
the story of the Bible matters and connecting all the stories together to Jesus. Um, and then it will be, you know, I'm writing introductions to each book of the Bible that are kid friendly. And also we're trying, trying to target someone who's, this will be their first Bible and they've just started to read. Um, and so I do like a short introduction on Genesis and then I'll say, as you read, you know, look for these things. It almost like kind of like either not clues, but you know, like look for when this happens or look for this repeated word. Um, and so it's, it's reader friendly, child reader friendly, uh, specifically thinking, you know, the, the kid who's reading the Bible for the first time, knowing they're not going to read everything and they're going to have a hard time getting through Leviticus and other things like that. Um, but trying to give them spots where like, if you want to know where Noah and the flood is, you know, here, here it is, turn to pages, whatever. Um, the other thing, and this is to thing you said a number of times is like not dumbing down, whether it's mm. in church or in Christian literature or in a study Bible or something. Um, we've intentionally tried to not dumb things down. And so um, I was just talking to the other guys working with Champ, who's working with me on this. And um, we're coming up with like, what are some, you know, they're going to come to this phrase or this word and they're not going to know what it means. And so we're creating kind of a glossary and it may, we're not sure if it'll be in the back or, or actually like right there in a little box, you know. Um, but in Deuteronomy, for example, there's a phrase, I can't remember how many times it's repeated, over five times, devoted to destruction. <laughs> mm. um, and it's like, we're going to tackle what that means. Yeah. Like, it's repeated a lot in Deuteronomy and they're going to come, if they're going to read through Deuteronomy, they're going to come through, you know, this is what God's people are supposed to do. They're supposed to destroy the city. Um, and so in a paragraph, explain what does that phrase mean? And so, or God's wrath or things like this. So it's not just, you know, or even dealing with, you know, stories that are in every children's Bible, Samson, but dealing with the bad stuff too. Sure. <laughs> and yeah, trying that's... in a kid-friendly way, like we can't, we can't do everything, you know, that, happens you know like explain what a concubine is or something right. but we'll try to do our best to say um we're speaking to kids but we're not going to shy away from what god's word actually says well doug one thing i'm struck with you know watching kids shows now because apparently that's you know 27 percent of my life is watching these horrible kid shows but there's no there's no real bad guys there's no real like yeah. angst or angst depending upon where you were raised there's there's no real like Mm, the you know the main character who is good is really struggling like yeah there's kind of good and bad there's good and evil but it, it's not nearly as uh i guess explicit as it was with the with the stuff that i was consuming as as a young kid so it's good yeah. to not just look at oh samson he had long cool hair and you know the jawbone of the donkey and all these cool feats of strength it's like that's not even the main part of the story. It's the main part we remember because we like, you know, strong men carrying heavy things. But, <laughs> right. you know, that that's not really the point of the story. So when can we expect for this kid's Bible thing? And whatever you say, we're going to hold you to it. So when can we expect <laughs> it on the market, Doug? Yeah, it should be. I should be done or we should be done writing and, and designing it uh, a year from now. And so it okay. usually takes a year, year after that. Okay. Well, we will be all about it whenever that comes out. And we've covered a lot of ground today, but I, I need to let you get on to doing your important work. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I'm 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 delighted. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. And I, I think this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and uh, I, you know, Rich's blessings to your, to your family, to your ministry, 
thanks for having me. Same to you, Doug O'Donnell. Thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Doug O'Donnell. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got three links for you today. I've got a link to his bio on the Crossway website. I've got a link to where you can buy your own copy of the ESV Men's Study Bible and also a link to Doug's Amazon page where you can check out all of his different books and all the things he's contributed to. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>